Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. We are recording this episode amid Beeson's Reformation Heritage Week, and we are honored to have this year's Reformation lecturer on the show with us today. By the time you hear this episode, his sermon and his lectures will be posted online. I encourage you to hear them. They offer a rich feast of biblical and reformational teaching, and you can find them on our YouTube channel, Beeson Divinity. Thanksgiving is coming soon, and we're thankful here at Beeson for you, dear listener. It's a real treat to share the work of God at Beeson with you regularly. And if the Lord prompts you to support us as you listen to our show, we would love it if you would use the giving page on our website, beesondivinity.com slash giving, or send an email to Dr. Gary Fenton and Beeson Advancement at gdfenton at samford.edu. Just one more announcement before we get underway. On Tuesday, November 30, our James Earl Massey Student Preaching Award winner will preach for us in Beeson's Chapel. The award recipient this semester is Cole Griffith, one of our graduating MDiv students. Will you please pray for Cole as he prepares to preach in chapel and they make plans to come and hear this future pastor preach the word from Revelation 21. All right, Kristen, I should probably stop announcing things for now. Will you please introduce today's podcast guest? Thank you, Doug, and hello, everyone. We have in the studio today our guest, Dr. Michael McClymond. Dr. McClymond is Professor of Modern Christianity at St. Louis University. He was educated at Northwestern University, Yale University, and the University of Chicago. And he has held teaching or research appointments at Wheaton College, Westmont College, the University of California, San Diego, Emory University, Yale University, and the University of Birmingham in the UK. He is the author and editor of 11 books, several which have won awards. So as you can tell, uh, he is very accomplished, and we are thrilled that you are here today with us at Beeson Divinity School. So welcome, Dr. McClyman, to the show. Well, thank you for hosting me on campus. We have loved having you here. You've already given a sermon and a lecture, and we look forward to your second lecture tomorrow. But for our listeners who um, don't know you other than what I've just said, could you introduce yourself more fully to us? Tell us more about who you are, your spiritual journey, anything that you want to share about yourself. Well, I was uh, born in Washington, D.C., grew up uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, and lived in Chicago, uh, and I had about 10 years in California, so I think of myself as a kind of Midwestern Californian before coming to St. Louis, where I've been for over 20 years now. Um, my father is a business executive. He lived a fascinating life. He's still a big influence in my life. He's in his late 80s. Just talked to him recently. He was the um, vice president of a company that became Enron. And if you know anything about the Enron debacle, what happened, my father was the competitor to become head of that corporation. And uh, I think actually it was better that he ended up not with them over the long term. My mother is with the Lord now. She was a visual artist, as is uh, my daughter, Sarah. So some of that, I didn't get the, art the visually artistic genes in my family. 
I and I I began uh, my career actually as a research chemist. Uh, my first job out of college, I worked for one of the men that developed the atomic bomb. He was president when they created the first nuclear reaction in Chicago. His name was David Breslow. He was brilliant, very challenging to work under him. But so I have about two years of laboratory experience as a research chemist before I, I followed the call to go to seminary and then grad school in religion. Dr. McClymouth, we want to let our listeners know about the sermon you preached in chapel yesterday and the lectures you're giving us this week. Those of us who've listened to you thus far know that you are very interested in global Pentecostalism, charismatic movements around the world, the history of revivals and revivalism, and that these interests of yours have actually shaped the lecturing you're doing for us this week uh, on the doctrine of the atonement. Could we begin by telling our listeners a little bit about the experiences you've had with global Pentecostalism, the research you're doing, your interests in Pentecostal and charismatic movements. Certainly, certainly. Like you, Dr. Sweeney, I started working on Jonathan Edwards and as a theologian, and that led ultimately into an interest in Edwards' role in the revival in America. And then that kind of broadened into the Encyclopedia of Religious Revivals that I edited, and that led into Pentecostalism. But at a later stage, I was approached by another scholar named Candy Gunther Brown, who, well, there's a fascinating backstory her, that her her husband, who is a uh, neuroscientist, was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And she had never experienced any healing uh, through prayer, but someone told her, basically announced to her an African Christian that she met that God was going to heal her husband, Josh, and, and lo and behold, he did receive healing, and the, there was no sign of his uh, tumor. Because he was a neuroscientist, he was reading, um, he could look at his own CAT scan and actually knew more about it than the technician operating the device. But so that launched Ka- uh, Candy Gunther Brown on this project to study divine healing. She drew me into it. We received a Templeton grant, $150,000 grant. The three of us worked together. And we got to travel with Randy, a man named Randy Clark to Mozambique, in Brazil and actually do before and after testing on site uh, in relation to vision, people are praying for vision and, and hearing impairments. And not everyone received benefit, but we had a significant number of people who were profoundly deaf or profoundly blind who were later seeing and hearing. Mm-hmm. And we also saw in the context of Africa as well as in Brazil, how this was closely tied to the expansion of the church. In one of the villages, this woman named Heidi Baker, who you know, he went with a husband to serve in Mozambique and like now there's something like 7,000 new churches in 20 years associated with this ministry. Many of this, much as was connected with healing, but there was a boy who was 18 years old in this little village in Mozambique who had never spoken and she said, stick out your tongue and she grabbed his tongue and began praying and he began making sounds. His wife, his, his mother was next to him and she started weeping because she had never made a sound in his entire life and she said, can you say Jesus? And so he started to say Jesus and everyone around him from the village were jumping up and down and they took him and they baptized him in the river right there. And now there's a church in that spot. And so everyone in the village heard about this. And so it's really something to see this um, right up front. Uh, some of the scientific atheists got wind of our research. And so they didn't weren't very happy about the our claims of healing. But we, we actually had medical evidence to show that this, these, these vision and hearing healings that were taking place. 
You shared this story yesterday in your chapel sermon. It was very moving. Can you tell our listeners uh, just a little bit more about uh, your sermon yesterday on 2 Corinthians? Uh, Summarize for us your message and what were you hoping to um, communicate to uh, your audience? Well, in my my more academic talks, I'm talking about how Jesus is both the substitute and a representative. A substitute in the sense that he does, he acts in our place on his atoning work on the cross, and that he does for us that which no, none of us can do for ourselves. But at the same time in scripture, we see that, that Jesus is lifted up as a representative and an example to be imitated. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, it says, that, have this mind in yourself which was in Christ, and then in First Peter 2, it's even more explicit that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And so in my sermon, I went to the text in 2 Corinthians 4, where it's really the book of, of Paul's that goes deepest into his own experiences of suffering, but he speaks of how he was always carrying about in his body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus could be manifested as well in him and through him. And what I suggest in the sermon is that we have today in certain circles, particularly Pentecostal circles, a so-called prosperity theology that sometimes seems to present the whole Christian life as a series of uninterrupted blessings. And I think some Christians in reaction against that have gone the other extreme and it's like, you know, we're called to suffering and this is just how it is and we kind of need to just put up with whatever we endure. And what I see in Paul's teaching is this this more creative, dynamic interplay that as we die to sin, as we die to self-will and our own desires, that God through his spirit fills us and enables us to walk in a truly supernatural way. And so I think the, the Calvinists and the Charismatics, so to speak, are both have part of the truth. The larger truth involves holding these things together. And then I talked about some experiences in Mozambique with Heidi and Roland Baker, who are, to me, living out this sort of apostolic life, really kind of living on the edge of um, experiencing many, many conflicts and difficulties. They took out a contract on her life to assassinate her, the people who didn't want her doing a mission work. And she's kind of like the Energizer Bunny, you know, she just would not give up. And over time, they, they just had this extraordinary fruitfulness of expanding the church in that region and also seeing God's uh, love and power and even on a physical level in the healing of the sick. As you've talked about with the students and the faculty on campus today, academic theologians have also paid quite a bit of attention to the doctrine of the atonement in recent years. It's become a fairly controversial doctrine uh, among academics. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and about how your approach to atonement doctrine fits in relationship to the ways in which other scholars are dealing with this? Certainly. Uh, I think uh, Colin Gunton was on to something, and I quoted him earlier when he said that the modern period is characterized by, post the, after the Enlightenment, is characterized by the idea of human autonomy. And human autonomy says essentially each of us, we're the captain of our own ship. We shape our own life, our own destiny, our direction. And really, the, one of the reasons the cross is a stumbling block, it's offensive to modern people, is the message of Jesus as our substitute dying in our places that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that we are lost without his work. And so I don't think there's any getting around that, that offense, the offense that comes from this message that, that guess what? You can't save yourself. You can't deliver yourself from 
uh, from the situation of sin. So there's an underlying current in our culture that is pushing uh, Christian preachers and pastors and theologians to maybe to, if, if not to deny the work of Christ on the cross, at least to begin to soften it in some ways and, and minimize it. And, and so we end up with this split, I think, between those who are very strict in wanting to say, Jesus, he is our substitute. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I call them the substitutionists. And then the, we have the exemplarists who are saying, no, Jesus, his life and death are a model that we're supposed to imitate. And to me, it's a, it's a kind of unhelpful split. I think these belong together. On the one hand, we need to recognize that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, his atoning work. But then we're called to, to have that mind of Christ and to live that life in which we are thinking of others. If, if I live out Philippians 2, it means I should be waking up in the morning and thinking every person I meet, how can I manifest the love of Christ to that person in that situation uh, on, on an ongoing way. So so in, in my lectures, I'm trying to heal what I think is an unfortunate rift that's developed uh, in the theological world. Your second lecture is called Reformation Era Diversity, the Cross and Lutheran, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Rationalist, and Mystical Perspectives. Uh, can you give us a teaser of that particular lecture? Yes, um, the, the, the cross is simply too large a topic to be confined into any particular category. And I see the different branches of the reformational movement, including even the rationalists, I think have something to contribute. And I tried to distill it down to a single point. I think the, the Lutheran idea of the cross, as the famous Swedish theologian Gustav Eilin said, was the notion of Christus Victor, that Christ triumphed over sin and judgment and Satan and death. All those things were defeated. What comes out of that is an attitude of confidence to the extent that we understand that, the, that Satan has already been defeated from the time that Jesus died. We can really walk in confidence. It doesn't mean that we won't have struggle, we won't have conflict, but the, but the victory has already been, has been won. The Calvinist uh, cross is more on the sort of substitutionary atonement. I've touched on that already. And there's an attitude of gratitude. There is a, um, a sense of, yeah, of just of, of how much we owe to him for what he has done for us, if we really understand that. Um, the Anabaptist cross is one that focuses more on the imitation of Christ. Uh, of course, the Anabaptists are known for their commitment to nonviolence and to peace. And, and uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount and trying really to live according to that. You see that the Anabaptists, also Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his famous book, Cost of Discipleship. That's another way of approaching the cross that to me is quite important. I try to work in the rationalists as well, and some of the rationalists did not actually believe that Jesus atoned by his death, but they saw Jesus as kind of like a, like a Socrates-type figure, one who died for his own convictions. And actually, I think that there's an element of that even in the New Testament for the conscience. Jesus, Paul says, made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And that's a that's an important topic for our time when issues of conscience are rising up and the importance of following one's conscience. And then finally, the mystical perspective, and here I'm drawing on some of the Catholic thinkers like John of the Cross, is that there is a dying to our own um, attachment to material things that we need to undergo. And so there's an element of renunciation or asceticism, you might say, that is a part of living out the, the reality of the cross. So 
there's an awful lot to uh, there's a, almost a smorgasbord here of different uh, different ways of thinking about the cross. Mike, I want our listeners to learn a little bit about some of the rest of your scholarship too. Of course, you and I have been friends for a long time, and I've been blessed by a lot of your books. Uh, everyone I've read, I'm not sure I've read all of them, but I've read most of them and been blessed by them. I've even read a couple of them while you were writing them, parts of them, and that was a blessing to me. But I have to confess, your next book is one I don't think I've read at all in any any part. Uh, it's called Martyrs, Monks, and Mystics, The Meaning and Message of Christian Spirituality. Let's talk about the rest of your scholarship or some of the rest of your scholarship, starting with that one, the one that's coming next. What that? What's that book about? What are you trying to do in it? Well, this is a. I was recruited to write this book by a Catholic publisher, Paulus Press, and I was, in fact, kind of surprised. Um, one of the uh, acquisitions editors at Paulus Press uh, had read some of my work elsewhere and wanted me to do it. I think um, I think she felt that I might give a more, let's say, more robust uh, account of Christian spirituality. It's intended to be a general textbook on Christian spirituality, and some of what's being published now is kind of spirituality light. It doesn't really have a lot of depth, and this is a book in which I'm going to be talking about, you know, bearing the cross and imitating Christ, as well as uh, meditation on Scripture, the, a little bit about monasticism, about martyrdom, and the spirituality of the martyrs, and so on. So, um, so I'm I've, I've, I'm learning actually a lot. I I think the chapters there are two chapters. One got expanded to on mysticism. It may be the hardest topic that I've ever worked on, the Christian mysticism, because I think there's an awful lot to learn from the mystics and to affirm there, but there are also some problematic aspects of mysticism as well. But it's, I'm doing this in a very ecumenically Christian way, so it synthesizes, uh, you know, we have Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and John of the Cross, but we have Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and uh, the German pietists and this sort of interweaving of, of different themes. Mike, most of our listeners would be Protestant. Not all, but most. It's a Beeson sort of family audience. Uh, you think we have some things to learn from the mystics. Tell us. Tell our, tell our Protestant listeners what you think we have to learn from the mystics. Well, I think one of the key things, and this comes out in my chapter on, on Lectio Divina, or the sort of biblical meditation, is I think Protestantism has a tendency toward intellectualizing the faith. And what, what, what we see in the Catholic tradition is a need to, you just start with scripture because that's a good foundation for, for Catholic and Orthodox and Protestants and Pentecostals. But we start with scripture. We need for scripture not simply to, so to, so to speak, flit around our mind. We need for it to become deeply, so deeply rooted in our heart that it affects the way that we experience the world and becomes the lens through which we see everything that's happening around us. And I found there was remarkable continuity between the Desert Fathers and the medieval Catholic mystics and some of the better uh, Protestant authors about how how to engage um, Scripture and how to to go deeper into contemplation. It's it's a model in which we are feeding on Scripture and Scripture really becomes our spiritual sustenance in a way. Origen in the early church spoke of the the flesh and blood and bones of Scripture and how we we appropriate that um, through reading and through um, through meditation. I think the message about the need for 
a meditative and contemplative aspect. I think it's as important today as it's ever been because I think these these wonderful devices that we all carry around with us that are beeping or mm-hmm. or or vibrating every few moments, you know, every few minutes. Um, are leading to such a level of distraction and such a focus uh, on the momentary that we're really losing sight of uh, the deeper reality of who God is and who we're to be in relation to him. And, of course, I go back to a very ancient source, which is Plato's allegory of the cave in, in the Republic, where you have the people that are chained to the wall, and they're seeing the shadow play on the wall, and they think that is all there is to reality. And so the contemporary translation of that would be the the people staring at the screen, looking at their Twitter oh feed, my, thinking it's reality, right? <laughs> and and in, in, in Plato's allegory, one brave soul climbs up out of the cave and he sees the sunlight and he's kind of blinds his eyes and he comes back in and tells the others, oh, this isn't reality, the shadows. It's like there's something up there. And in Plato's version of the story, they kill him. They gang up on him, decide he's a madman for saying this. Well, I think this has a lot of contemporary pertinence to in our very distracted, digital, media-driven culture. I realize that this is being broadcast through media, but but I'm talking about media diet. You know, we have to pay attention to how much time we devote to certain kinds of media and whether we're feeding on the right things. Uh, another book that you've written recently is one of the award-winning books that I mentioned at the beginning of the show and a book that I believe that Dr. Sweeney endorsed mm-hmm. called The Devil's Redemption, which offers a historical survey and theolo- theological engagement with universalism. So I'm curious, why did you write this book? Um, and if you could explain to our listeners, what is universalism? And how should Christians um, engage with this? What should we know about it? Um, if you could just talk some about your book. I'll try to be very concise. The book is 543,000 <laughs> words. It was much more than I expected. And in fact, I contracted with a publisher for only half that length, and they were really in shock when they got the final manuscript. It, there was so much more to this debate. The debate's been going on for 1,800 years, so... I profile about 130 thinkers over 18 centuries in the book. This started with a book that 10 years ago that some may have heard of, a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell. And during Holy Week, I think it was 2011, the year his book came out, there was a cover story at Newsweek or Time Magazine, What If There Is No Hell? And this was a a very positive profile of Rob Bell's book. And I started checking around with people. I remember feeling kind of inclination that I took to be from the Lord that I was supposed to write in something in response. And, and I, was, I was resisting it. It's like God had to sort of twist my arm on this because I didn't really, this is a highly controversial topic. But I remember going into the local uh, coffee and sandwich shop and there was a whole circle of women sitting there. They all had their Rob Bell book cracked open and I could overhear them talking, oh, this is so wonderful. We don't have to, there's no judgment. No one is going to be judged. And think about the implications of that for a Christian. You don't have to have a difficult conversation with your non-Christian friend, your agnostic friend, your Hindu friend. You don't have to tell. If they ask you point blank, could something terrible happen to me after I die, if I reject Christ, I consciously deliver? If you're a universalist, you can. You believe that universal salvation, that's what the word means. So all will be saved. The title of the book is sort of playing with this idea that if God would never create an intelligent creature that would be lost, and that would mean that even Satan has to be redeemed. And no, the book is not actually claiming that the devil is redeemed. There's one Amazon comment 
that like I think this book is terrible that he's saying that the, the devil will be redeemed. Like obviously they didn't get past the title. The title is, is a thought is to be thought provoking. Hmm. Can the devil be redeemed? I want people to be thinking about that. So I began to do research and to make a very long story short. I was in the stacks at Yale University. I was on a research leave working there. And I had an, a handwritten set of names of Christian universalists, some of whom were not particularly well-known, Vladimir Soloviev and Jane Led and a bunch of others, Valentin Tomberg from different countries, from Germany and Russia and, and uh, England. And um, um, and I was, I was trying to figure out what connected them all with one another. And I pulled a volume off the, the reference shelf. It's called the Dictionary of Gnosis, which is, means like Gnosticism and Esotericism. And it wasn't a theological book. It was really a book on this sort of strand of esoteric religion. And to my amazement, there was an article on every one of those figures in that book. And that led me into a long journey into <laughs> What's the Jonathan Edwards scholar doing reading all this Gnostic literature? But I ended up going deep into Gnostic literature, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, as well as Christian, certain strands of Christian mysticism. And what I discovered is that there was this underlying driving theology of the universalist movement that began with this idea that each of us, the soul in us, is a part of God that has fallen from the empire, you know, the empyrean realm above and become trapped in the physical body. But what has come down must return. It's kind of like a having a helium balloon inside your chest, and when you die, the balloon returns. It ascends once again. Now, if that's the model for salvation, then all of us would be saved just by virtue of what we are as human beings. And, and why would we need Jesus to come? Maybe he would only be coming and telling us, hey, guess what? You're going to be saved. So, so this is, this is a theology that kept reappearing in the history of, um, of Christianity. And I, I trace that out in, in quite some depth. And I find that that kind of Gnostic, esoteric, Kabbalist idea is still with us. The book, when it came out, provoked some howls of, a, pro, a, pro, a protest and uh, from a number of leading academic theologians that did not like it at all. So, what have you learned, Mike, as you've responded to to the beating you've taken from some other academic theologians? And let me reiterate: I think your book is excellent, and I agree with you. I am on your side. But clearly, in our day and age, insofar as there is an orthodoxy anymore, inclusivism is at the heart of that new orthodoxy, and uh, your approach to universalism militates against that kind of orthodoxy. Uh, give us some advice for ministry leaders, pastors. Our, our audience is full of people who probably agree with you more than with your opponents about the issues related to universalism, but they're trying to figure out, is there a good way to bear witness to this traditional Christian understanding of salvation through Christ alone that is winsome and that might well uh, bear some good fruit in their ministries, or do they just need to stand up for the truth and take a beating like you've taken a beating? Well, one of the things that I did in the book is I tried to show how this the question of final salvation, whether it is it is partial or universal, is tied in with many, many other doctrines. And, and what I would say is that for obvious reasons, universalism has great curb appeal. You think of like a universalist house. From the curb, it looks wonderful. But I don't recommend that people buy the house without stepping inside, mm -hmm. checking the, the wiring, so to speak, getting into the crawl space. And what you find is that whenever universalism 
has taken hold in a group of professing Christians, it's ultimately undermined all the other elements of faith. The, the group, the, the denomination today we call the Unitarian Universalist, that was a merger of the Universalist movement with the Unitarian. And guess what? The Universalist, who started out as, they said, were evangelical Christians, but who simply believe that everyone is saved. And that's kind of the starting point for Robin Perry and Rob Bell and some others, they said, oh, we're good evangelicals, but just as evangelicals can disagree over, I don't know, views of eschatology and the rapture and tribulation, we can disagree over this. Well, that sounds wonderful, but then you look at the historical record and you find that the Universalist Church, ultimately, what they said is that God didn't, Jesus did not bear any judgment on the cross, and once you give up that element of judgment, then Jesus is just a human being dying on the, they actually gave up the divinity of Jesus. And so you have the Universalists and Unitarians merging together. The, I did a review, um, of, at the Gospel Coalition website of, um, David Bentley Hart's work. And, uh, so if people are interested in that, look under my name, Gospel, Gospel Coalition, and I, you can see the critique of that. But, so that, that's kind of a slippery slope argument, but I think it's an important one. Another element is, Again, I can refer people to an online essay called The Opiate Opiate of the Theologians. And, of course, I'm playing with the Marx's expression about opiate of the masses. But, but what I argue there essentially, and this is online at the First Things website, is that universalism is the way that we would want the world to be. We would want everyone to respond. Who wouldn't want everyone to be saved in the end? And I compare this to the gospel story frozen at the moment of the triumphal entry. Yay, Jesus. Everyone's clapping. They're all applauding. Now imagine just running that loop, you know, of film again and again and again. But wait a second, something else happens. Uh, as, as Karl Barth once said, perfect love appears in history and gets crucified. And so an unsentimental look at the gospel story itself, you don't even have to look at the world around. It's just the gospel story. We realize that, that Again, I mean, to cite John 3, Scripture says, the light has come into the world. It says, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And then it talks about those who go to come to the light and those who flee from it. We can't, um, we can't get away from this element of judgment. And as one biblical scholar said, he says, it's not the purpose of the light to cast shadows, but if the light, if the light is shining, shadows will be cast. And so, there really isn't a way to escape um, this this element of the, the judgment that takes place. Of course, it's Jesus dies on the cross, and also the the element of freedom as well. I think many are familiar with C.S. Lewis's statement that there are only two kinds of people: those who, who those to whom God those those who say to God, "Your will be done," and receive salvation, and those to whom God says, "Your will be done." And the, the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside, as Lewis said. So that element of freedom, the, the, uh, Benedict XVI, Pope Benedict XVI speaks of hell as finally an expression of human freedom. That it is the creature's capacity to say no to God. And at some level, we could, we could rebel against the whole way that God has made the world and, you know, some people will say, well, if I were God, I would. And I, what I want to say is, whoa, stop. Don't finish the sentence. Don't say, if I were God, you're not God, right? And we're not really in a position to adjudicate like, well, God maybe should have made the world in a different way so that everyone would be saved. But many academic theologians do want to say, um, if I were God, I would have done things differently. And this is what, this is what God should have done. Therefore, does, ergo, 
This is what God did do. That's kind of what David Bentley Hart is doing. And he says that if God allowed even one creature that he created to be lost, then God is no longer God, no longer worthy of worship, and it's better to be an atheist. So it's a startling claim that he's making that ultimately involves a rejection of uh, the whole earlier tradition. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We always like to end the show by asking our guest what the Lord has been teaching you these days that might be a word of encouragement to our listeners. Well, I I would say that I am learning more about faith um, in a practical level. I do think um, and this is something I learned from my charismatic friends, especially that there is a sense in which, you know, Jesus said, you know, be it done to you according to your faith, that, um, that we need to, uh, stretch ourselves to trust God for, uh, extraordinary, uh, breakthroughs, the needs of people to met. And see, I, I put myself in a situation every week where I go out and I, I do prayer walking. I, I happen to live in the most violent, most murderous city in America. Currently, it's St. Louis. And I lead a group and we go to the murder sites, the homicide sites. That brings us into people on the street and people who need food and clothing. And one guy that we found was on the verge of death. He was overdosing from fentanyl. He got a Narcon safe shot. He moved into the home of one of the people I knew. Then he relapsed uh, once again. So this is it takes faith you, to, to, to trust God for this person who will go nameless. We have to really believe that there's hope for him. And um, fortunately, he's he checked himself now into a new rehab program. But when we're on the streets and we're encountering drug dealers and 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 drug abusers and and street walkers, prostitutes, there, um, it's it's a challenging environment because of uh, the, the 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 lifestyle issues that that they're facing. So I'm learning about faith through being in that environment. And what I would say to the listeners is, put yourself where. Um, you need to trust in God. Heidi Baker said, she puts it this way, she says, we, the way that we do ministry says, if God doesn't show up, we completely fail. And so if you're not in a situation where you need God to show up in order not to fail, then maybe, maybe you need to be further out on that limb of faith, so to speak. That's a good word, Dr. McClyman. Thank you for your faithfulness. Listeners, uh, you have been hearing Dr. Michael McClymond, uh, an old friend of mine, a learned and faithful theologian, uh, a wonderful churchman, fine Christian. It's an honor for us to have him on campus with us this week, giving our Reformation Heritage Lectures. Thank you, Mike, for being with us. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. We love you. Please pray for us. We say goodbye to you for now. been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.